Acts chapter 17, let's go. We've been in the book of Acts since, uh, I don't know, early last year sometime. And last week we left off in Acts chapter 17. Paul is in the middle of his second missionary journey, which has taken him now all the way to Athens, Greece. And as I told the boys and girls, before he got there, they had never heard of Jesus. They didn't know anything about the gospel. They didn't know about Jesus's life. They didn't know about his death on the cross. And they certainly did not know the good news about his resurrection from the dead. And so Paul is walking through this big city. It's a very religious city. Everywhere you turn, there were statues of false gods everywhere, shrines to false gods everywhere. It was said of the city of Athens, that as you walk through the city, you are more likely to see a God than to see a man. So the first place that Paul goes to try to find a place where he could be heard and share the gospel was his typical MO. He finds a Jewish synagogue there. And so there he begins to tell these people about Jesus and who God is. And he moves out from there. His circle kind of grows. And he goes to the Agora or this massive marketplace there in Athens. And Paul's just maneuvering throughout all the masses of the people there. And he's telling them about God and the gospel and who Jesus is. And in the middle of this huge marketplace, this is where the real stuffy, high-minded philosophers hung out. Remember, Athens is hometown to great philosophers like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. And so Paul makes his way to the middle of all of these people, and here you've got this collection of philosophers. There's this group called the Epicureans. What they were about was pleasure. Uh, They were about avoiding pain and discomfort at all costs, and you wanted to have experiences. You wanted to have pleasure. You wanted to go for the gusto, so to to speak, which really just meant that they were very materialistic, and they were just diving into all types of sensual lust and that kind of stuff. Across from them, you had the Stoics. The Stoics stood in stark contrast to the Epicureans. The Stoics were really people who believed in, in order and logic and reasoning, and they weren't given to doing things on the whim. They weren't about pleasure-seeking. They were about suppressing your emotions, whether they were positive or negative emotions. You weren't to be ruled by your emotions, and so you just sort of had this um, suppressed, unemotional, self-sufficient sort of mentality and approach to life. And so the Epicureans and the The Stoics that Paul now is beginning to engage, they are as different from each other as day and night. And here's what happens. In verse 19 of Acts chapter 17, then they took him, that's Paul, to the high council of the city. Come and tell us about this new teaching, they said. You were saying some rather strange things, and we want to know what it's all about. It should be explained that all the Athenians, as well as the foreigners in Athens, seem to spend all their time discussing the latest ideas. I told you last week, the Athenians weren't known for getting together to talk about sports. They weren't known for getting together to talk about politics. They were known for getting together and talking about ideas and philosophy. And now they're hearing something from Paul that they've never heard before. And so they want to hear more about that. So they take Paul to what's called the Oropagus. I think I might have a picture of that to show you today. It's, it's also called Mars Hill. It's just this big rock that just stands out in contrast in the landscape there around Athens. In fact, if you go there today at the base of the Oropagus, you can see uh, Paul's sermon from Acts chapter 17 is is sketched into a plaque there at the base of that hill. So this is where 
that happened. There's a statue of Paul not too far from there. Paul is a pretty prominent figure still today uh, in the city of Athens. So it, he, it's here on the top of that rock, Mars Hill, the Oropagus. This is where really you might say the city council of Athens would meet. This is where they would convene. It was a group of men, uh, about 30 of them or so, and among their duties was, was this. They were to make sure that if anybody came into Athens talking about a god, that they did not know or they had not heard of, they wanted to make sure that that God would in no way blaspheme their hundreds and hundreds of other gods that they may have. So it's their duty, really, to sort of interrogate Paul and find out about this new idea he's presenting, this new teaching and this new God that he's proclaiming. Now, you know Paul's not interested in just making sure that all the gods get along with each other and that the one true God finds his rightful place on the shelf next to all the other gods. Paul is on a mission to see to it that there is only one God that is worshipped, one God that is praised, because there's only one name under heaven by which we can be saved, and that's the name of Jesus. And by the way, Paul is made for this moment. He is the right man to be on top of that rock. He is the right man to be standing there in the middle of the Stoics and Epicureans and all these high-minded people. I would not have been the right man for that moment. Most of you probably would not have been the right man or the right woman for that moment. But I know this, I'm the right man for the moment and the place where God's put me now. And so are you. Wherever it is, whatever the hill is that God has stationed you on in this world, You're to be a light for him in that place. And nobody else can do it like you. You are the right person at the right moment in the right place for the purposes of God. So Paul is going to tell them three things here. And he's going to do it beautifully and brilliantly. He knows their culture. He knows their arts. He knows their poets. He knows their literature. He understands their worldview and how they think. And he brings all of that together to tell them the three truths that they need to hear. Here's the first one. Number one, he wants them to know that you can know the God that you do not know. You can know the God that you do not know. Look at verse 22. So Paul, on top of that rock, he's standing before the council, and he addressed them as follows. And again, you can see these words today at the bottom of that rock. Men of Athens... I noticed that you're very religious in every way. For as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines, and one of your altars had this inscription on it, to an unknown God. Think about that. Paul had been moving throughout the city, and he came across this one God that didn't have a name. It was just titled, to an unknown God. He said, this God whom you worship without knowing is the one that I'm telling you about. Now, this is brilliant on Paul's part, right? He's found an interesting way to connect to his audience. He's found an interesting way to build a bridge from the one true God to meeting these people right where they are. He probably points up behind the Oropagus, up on the hill to the Parthenon, where there were many of these gods that were up there, the shrines and the statues. By the way, if you ever go to Nashville, there is a life-size reproduction of the Parthenon in Centennial Park. Mike, have you been there? You're from Nashville. It's amazing. It looks like, as far as we know, and, and you can go to Athens today and still see most of the Parthenon is still standing. It was built, 
um, in uh, about 600 B.C. So it's pretty amazing to see. These are real people, real places. This stuff really happened. And so Paul's probably pointing up there going, I noticed when I was walking around here, you got a God that you don't know who he is. And I'm here to tell you about the God that you don't know. Now, this wasn't the only God that they recognized that had statues or shrines to that they called the unknown God. There wasn't just one. There were lots of these unknown gods around the city. Well, here's the backstory on that. About 600 years before Paul got there, there was some type of plague or pandemic that hit Athens, and people were dying, and it seemed like nothing could stop this. And the people got concerned that they had offended a god. But the problem was they didn't know the god that they offended. Therefore, they didn't know what they could do to appease the god to try to keep everybody from from dying in the pandemic. Now listen, if you're kind of questioning, have we handled the pandemic correctly in our world over the last couple of years? Wait till you hear how they dealt with a pandemic uh, in 600 B.C. Here's what they did. They said, we don't know which god this is coming from. They took a large herd of sheep up to that same rock, to the Oropagus. And they held them up there, got them good and hungry and ready to go crazy. And then they turned them loose. And these sheep just started running all over Athens. And they said, when the sheep finally get tired and lay down, kill the sheep in that spot and sacrifice it to the God that it's closest to. Because maybe, maybe that's the God that we've angered. And somebody raised their hand apparently and said, oh, but, but what if it doesn't lay down near a God? And they said, well, if the sheep lays down and there's no God close to that sheep, kill it and sacrifice it and we'll make a new God and call it to the unknown God. How about that, right? Maybe we should have tried that a couple, <laughs> couple years ago. This, so this is, what they, this is what they did. So you got all these unknown gods all over the city. And Paul uses that to connect with them. Why? Because he wants them to know. The God that they don't know. Why? Because people who don't know God, they live sad lives. They live lives of desperation that they carry in their souls. Their souls aren't satisfied. The Greeks, with all their gods, had not found any satisfaction. They kept looking for another God and another God and another God. But none of them met the deepest needs of their hearts. All of the pleasure that the Epicureans were seeking didn't meet the deepest needs of their hearts. The Stoics could suppress all of their emotions, but they could not fix the problem that they had deep inside in their hearts. So Paul wants to introduce them to the one true God. He wants them to know them. He wants them to honor him and to glorify him because the path to joy and the path to satisfaction is living a life that's pleasing to God, is living a life that brings glory to God. When he gets the glory, we get the, that's right, we get the joy. But the Athenians don't have that joy. The Epicureans don't have it, and the Stoics don't have it. And the reality is today, y'all, around us, so many people, they don't have that. The joy that we know that we have in God. And like Paul, we ought to want people to know that you can know the God that you don't know. We, we tend to think that here in the Bible Belt, everybody knows God. They might know about God. They might know some things about God. But so many people don't know God. And we need to 
follow the example of Paul and come alongside people and say, I want you to know the God that you don't know. You can know the God you don't know. Second thing that Paul says, he says, this is who he is. He starts to describe the God that they don't know. The first thing he says to them is, he's creator. He's creator. Look at verse 24. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Now, that wasn't a popular statement for the Epicureans and the Stoics to hear. That's still not a real popular statement in our world today to tell people God made the world and he made everything that's in the world. But you know, only the Bible has a coherent answer to the question of how did we get here? Every other worldview apart from a biblical worldview just ends in a place of absurdity. But the Bible has the answer to that question. And, and, and science tells us that the universe is made of time and space and matter. And, you know, up until about 100 years ago, scientists believed that the universe was eternal, that it didn't have a starting moment. But now, because we understand from uh, Hubble and others that the universe is expanding, we understand from the law, second law of thermodynamics and so on and so on, that the universe has a point of origin. It's not eternal. There was a moment that it came into existence. There was a moment that time and space and matter came into existence. Now, what that tells us is whatever caused it to come into existence must have existed outside of it. It must have existed outside of time. It must have existed outside of space. It must have existed outside of matter. Now, if something exists outside of time, we call that eternal. If something exists outside of space, we call that boundless, infinite. If something exists outside of matter, we would call that immaterial, or you might even call it spiritual. Now, does anybody here happen to know anybody that is eternal and spiritual and boundless and infinite? That's God. He's the uncaused cause that brought everything into existence. And Paul is saying, I want you to know the God you don't know, and he's your creator. Not only is he creator, but he is Lord. He's king. Notice what he says next in verse 24. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth. The Athenians, they worshipped the goddess Gaia as the god of earth. They worshipped the, the Greek god Uranus as the god of heaven. And Paul says, no, 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 listen. I'm telling you, the god you don't know, he's the god of heaven. And he's the god of earth. He's the Lord of heaven. He's the Lord of earth. And not only did they worship these gods, but they were part of the Roman Empire, right? It had been drilled into them. Caesar is Lord. And Paul says, no, the God you don't know, he is Lord of earth, and he is Lord of heaven. You don't know him. He created you, and he's Lord. But you can know the God you don't know. Third, he says, he's transcendent. He's transcendent. There's another big word our kids probably already know. The end of verse 24 says he doesn't live in man-made temples and human hands can't serve his needs for he has no needs. Paul says, in other words, he is self-existing. He is transcendent. He exists in a way that he does not need creation to help him. He doesn't need creation to sustain him. He doesn't need creation to keep him going. He exists all on his own, transcendent from everything that he has made. The Greeks were sort of interdependent with their gods. 
They, they believe that, hey, we, we need the gods, and the gods, they kind of need us. And Paul says, no, listen, the God you don't know, he doesn't need any of us because he has no needs. He is almighty God all by himself. And his godness does not rise and fall like the stock market based upon what you do or don't do. He's God, and he's the same yesterday and today and forever. He says, listen, you don't know this God, but I want you to know the God you don't know. He's creator. He's Lord. He's transcendent. Number four, he's a giver. This God's a giver. He goes on and he says in verse 25, he himself gives life and breath to everything. And watch this. And he satisfies every need. This is what he gives. He gives what no other can give. He gives life and life to the full. Satisfaction. Paul knows as he says that, that there's not a human heart on that hill besides him whose hearts have found satisfaction. Man, they've looked and they've chased. But he knows that he's addressing a bunch of people who have no satisfaction in their hearts. There's a God-shaped void in their hearts. And Paul is speaking into that despite the fact that they have hundreds of gods no joy, no peace, no satisfaction, despite the fact that they've chased all kinds of pleasures, no satisfaction, despite the fact that they have learned how to suppress so many of their emotions, their hearts are still not satisfied, their deepest needs are still not met, and Paul says, the God you don't know, he'll do that. And you can know the God you don't know. He's creator, he's Lord, he's transcendent, he's giver, and he's in control. Look at verse 26. Paul says, from one man, he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. Listen, the Athenians knew their history. They knew the story of world empires. They, they knew about the Egyptians. They knew about the Assyrians. They knew about the Babylonians. They knew about the Persian Empire. They knew about their own Greek Empire. They knew how it had fell. And now they knew that they were underneath the Roman Empire. What they did not know is that behind all of that is this God that Paul's talking about. And Paul says, he's the one that raises up empires and tears them down. He's the one that establishes nations and kingdoms, puts them into their place, and sets their boundaries. History is his story. We're not writing our history. God is. It's his story. And Paul wants them to know the God they don't know. Who's the God they don't know? He's creator. He's Lord. He's transcendent. He's giver. And he's in control. And he's near. He's near. Look at verse 27. Paul said his purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. God is near, Paul says. Can you imagine in front of all of these people on top of that rock? Paul goes, he's near, and he wants you to know him. And that's a crazy thought to the Epicureans. Like most Greeks, they believed that their gods were far away. They believed that their gods really didn't have an interest in knowing them personally. They just kind of existed in Godland, somewhere way out there, far away from the wants and the needs of humanity. The gods of the Greeks, they didn't go out of their way. The Greeks didn't believe that their gods went out of their way to come near to the people. 
But Paul's saying the God that you don't know, he's not like these gods. He, he wants to come near. He wants you to know him. He wants to be personal. That's the next thing he says. He's personal. Verse 28, Paul says, For in him we live and move and exist. And then watch this. Paul says, as some of your own poets have said. Right? I mean, this is, Paul grabs pop culture from Athens and he uses that to draw them in and to grab their attention. He says, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. Their gods were made by craftsmen. They were just marble, granite, stone. They were impersonal, impersonal. But the God they don't know, he's not made of stone. He's not made of material. He's a God that's a person, and he doesn't merely exist in our world. We exist in his. In fact, Paul says, in him we live. We move. We have our very being, Moses said. And what's Paul told him? He says, listen, there's a God you don't know. But you can know him, and I'm telling you who he is. He's creator, he's Lord, he's transcendent, he's a giver, he's in control, he's near, and he's personal, personal. And here's the third thing Paul tells them. This is what this God's commanding you to do. Repent. Repent. Turn. Turn to him. Turn away from all these other things. Turn away from your philosophies. Turn, turn away from your false pseudo-gods. Turn away from all of that and turn to God. Look at verse 30. Paul says, God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times. In other words, Paul says, God has held back his judgment in the past. But the days of God holding back his judgment, those days are coming to an end. He's not holding back much longer. But here's the good news. He's made a way for you to not be judged. He's made a way for you to be rescued. He's made a way for you to be saved from the coming judgment of a holy God. Verse 30 goes on and Paul says, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent. Turn from your sins and turn to him. That's what repentance is. It's turning from something, turning to something. Turn from all these other things that you've hoped in, all these other things that you've looked to for hope and for joy and for satisfaction. Turn from those things and turn to God. Verse 31, why? Because he has set a day. The day has been set for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed. Who's the man he's appointed to judge? And he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. In other words, Paul says, listen, there's a God you don't know, but you can know him. And this is who he is. And he unpacks who he is. And this is what God is telling you. Repent. Because the judgment of God is coming. But you can escape that judgment and you can escape that wrath because God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Jesus stepped into this world and he lived a perfect and a sinless life. He was the sacrifice of God on the cross for your sin and mine. He substituted himself in your place and in my place, took the punishment that should have been mine, bore the wrath of God that should have been mine so that we escape the judgment of God and instead become the sons and the daughters of God. Think about this. While the Athenians sacrificed sheep 
to try to escape a pandemic, the Father sacrificed His one and only Lamb to save me and you from death. Jesus died. But His sacrifice was so perfect and so pleasing in the sight of His Father that after three days, God raised Him from the dead. Look at verse 32. When they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in contempt. But others said, we want to hear more about this later. That ended Paul's discussion with them. But some joined him and became believers. Isn't that fantastic? For the first time, the one true God is being worshipped in Athens. He's being honored and he's being glorified. Among those that joined him were Dionysius, a member of the council. How about that? One of those highfalutin dudes came to know Jesus. And a woman named Damaris and others with them. Not sure how many, not sure who, but the church is on the move from Jerusalem to Antioch to Europe to Philippi and now to Athens. Let's pray. With your heads bowed, I just want to ask you, you know, the biggest decision that you're ever going to make in your life is this. Will I trust Jesus to take the punishment for my sin? Or will I take the punishment for my sin myself? Which means to be separated from God. Away from Him forever. God's let you go this long without being punished. But payday's coming. And the only way you don't experience God's crushing punishment against sin is to trust Jesus. He's made a way through the cross to rescue and to save. If you're here today and you don't know him, I'm standing on the hill God's put me on to say to you, you can know today the God you don't know. He wants you to know him. He wants to rescue you. Jesus took the wrath of God on himself so not a drop of it has to fall on you. He's all you need. He's what you're looking for. He alone is the satisfier of your soul. And wherever you may be hearing my voice today from your living room or in the car later this week or right here in the room right now, God's calling you to repent, to turn from the things that you have hoped in, the things that you thought would work, the things that you thought would satisfy. Turn from and turn to Jesus today. It's that simple. I'm so thankful that God gave us a gospel that you don't have to be deep in the weeds of philosophy to get it. Even a child 
can understand. This is bad. This is not good. This does not work. And God does. And he loves me. And I can turn to him. And I can be saved. Wherever you are right now in this room or some other place right now, if you need to trust Christ, I pray you do that right now where you sit. Say, God, I want to know you. You're the God that I don't know. I've served a lot of other gods. I've put hope in a lot of other things. But I want to know you. I want to know you through your son, Jesus. I believe he is your son. I believe he died in my place. I believe you raised him from the dead. And I give you my life today, God. If you did that today, I I pray you'll let somebody know. It's the best next step to take. Tell somebody. Would you let me know? I'd be honored. And I'd love to help you begin to walk in that relationship with the Lord. Christians, let me speak to you for a minute. We talked about this last Sunday. Look around at all the idols around us. When are we going to stand on the hill that God has put us on? When are we going to say to this world, you can know the God, the only God, that you don't know. He made you. He's creator. He is king of kings. He is Lord of lords. He doesn't need us, but he loves us. He gave his only son. When are we going to stand on the hill, the hill that God's put us on, and tell people about Jesus? Listen to me, church. God's got you exactly where he wants you to be. He's got you on the exact hill that he wants you to be on. Some of you, all you can think about is getting to the next hill. Why? You're on the hill today that he wants you to be on. Are we being found faithful where he's placed us today to point people to who he is? God has you right now where he wants you to be. Today, would you say, God, I want to be faithful. Maybe you've been trying to get out of that and get off that hill. But with today, would you just say, God, I surrender. I want to be faithful to you on this hill. I, I want to consecrate this place where you have me right now and say, God, this is yours and I'm yours. Whatever you want to do with me here, would you do it? I want to be bold. I want to show your love. I want to share with others today the hope that I have in you. Are you being faithful on your heel? If not, why not? Is he not worthy? God, I pray that today salvation would come to people who maybe thought that they know you, but they didn't. Today they would know the God that prior to now they have not known. And God, I pray for your church. In particular, I pray for this small expression of it that we call grace life. I pray, God, that we would embrace where you have placed us, when you have placed us, and before whom you have placed us. And that our zeal for your glory would burn hot within us 
and we would not waste the moments that we have on this hill. That we would use these moments to point people to the one true God. Because you are worthy. You are worthy. In Jesus' name.